Will you join me as we pray and prepare our hearts again? <clears throat> Father, thank you for your gift of grace to us. Thank you that it comes through music. It comes through people who write beautiful poetry and set it to the kind of music that engraves those truths upon our hearts that helps us to express some deep longings and desires that otherwise we wouldn't know how to put into words. Thank you for those who work hard and prepare to lead us uh, through these songs to express those desires to you. Thank you for moments of silence in which we can reflect upon the condition of our hearts and thank you, Father, that you do not ask us to do that, to condemn us or to judge us, but to invite us to come into your presence, that our worship of you may be authentic, that we might be real, just like these children before you, Father. And now as we come to that part of that worship service every weekend when we sit and hear your word, I pray that through our active and careful and attentive listening, Father, we may show you that we believe your words are important for us to pay attention to because of the one who is speaking them. And Father, I pray that as, as, as a flawed human being myself, through whom these words have to be communicated this morning, that you will not let my shortcomings interfere in any way with your voice being heard clearly by your people who are gathered here. We are here because you have called us. We are here at your invitation to come, because you told us now is the time to worship. Now is the time to listen carefully, Father. And so Holy Spirit of God, Take human words, human syllables, and make them powerful, Father, where they correspond with your word. And where my words do not correspond to your truth, I pray they will just very quickly be forgotten, Father. May that which remains be seed that is sown on good soil, and in the weeks and the months to come, I pray that it will bear good fruit to your glory and for the blessing of one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we, we could probably go into any bookstore, dozens of bookstores, I would suspect, in a city like ours, secular as well as religious, and pick up dozens of books on the subject of marriage. Uh, books that tell us how to make bad marriages good and good marriages better. Books that tell us how to break up marriages nicely without fighting, how to have clean divorces and whatnot. Uh, and after a while, there isn't a whole lot of stuff new in these books. We've heard them all in various ways. They're just being said by different people with different times and different stories. But if I were a betting man, I would be prepared to bet a lot of money on one um, assertion. That there is one absolutely crucial foundational truth about marriage that is probably omitted from almost all those books. I'll give you about 30 seconds to think about what that might be. Of course, I won't be able to prove my assertion, but... <laughs> The Apostle Paul, uh, for those of you who may not have biblical background, uh, he was the first century Christian leader who was writing to a group of Christians gathered in the city called Ephesus, which is Izmir in modern day Turkey. And he wrote these words about marriage. In a lot of the long section on marriage, he wrote these words. Excuse me, there's something showing up here, shouldn't it? He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting what Moses wrote way back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And then he makes this profound and powerful and unexpected jump. He said, this is a profound mystery. Marriage is a mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So, according to God, this basic 
institution called marriage that he instituted right at the very beginning of creation has an astounding purpose to serve and that is to reflect to the world around us the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. It is this truth that is likely to be missing from most books on marriage, Christian or not. There are some staggering implications of this for marriage. And I want to focus on one particular one of them because my intention was actually to touch on two or three of them. But by the time I finished with this first one, there wasn't time left for anything else. And I had this growing conviction that this was something that was absolutely foundational as well. Precisely because marriage has such a staggering purpose to fulfill, such a transcendental, mysterious purpose to fulfill, we are on marriages under attack. That's what I want to talk to you about. They are under attack because they are so foundational and so strategic in God's purposes. Writing to the same church in Ephesus, Paul later on in that same letter writes, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. Then four times the apostle Paul says, Christians, take a stand against the enemy, the devil and his schemes. As I've told you before on other occasions, the devil hates the church, the bride of Christ. And because he hates the church, he will also hate that particular manifestation or, or, or institution, marriage, which is intended to uniquely reveal to the world the relationship between Christ and the church. And so his specific exhortation to us as married couples is to take a stand against the enemy, to realize that our marriages are battlegrounds and the enemy has strategic schemes against us. Because every marriage that he takes down is one more attack successfully against the purposes of that marriage for the church and for the church in the world. And, and he gives us some weapons. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints and pray also for me. And what I want to do today is just to walk you through each of these pieces of, wep of the weapon and the armor that has been given to us. But specifically in the context, of I've never done this before, to actually think about this in the context of this particular aspect of this Christian warfare, which has to do with our marriages. But before I do that, there are two groups of people that I want to briefly comment on how you might need to listen carefully. First of all, those of you who are singles, you're not married. Last week I, I showed with you from the scriptures what an incredible, lofty, noble goal and purposes God has for single people in the kingdom of God. Because there is now the family of God that is even more foundational than the biological families that are, that are reproduced through creation. The reason you need to listen carefully is that many of the things that I'll be talking about this morning really have application to all significant relationships. And as singles, you do have and should have significant relationships in your life. Also, for those of you singles for whom God's purposes will include marriage sometime in the future, and we know from last week that is not necessary or important, but it will be there for some of you, it is a great time for you well before that to understand this dimension of marriage called spiritual warfare. 
The other group of people is if you happen to be visiting with us today, and you might be, uh, or you're not yet at that point in your Christian, in your spiritual pilgrimage where you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, some of what I say may not seem particularly relevant to you. Uh, I would just simply thank you for the opportunity to share with you how Christians are supposed to understand their marriages. And to the extent that we, through our marriages, have failed to set before you an appropriate testimony of what Christ thinks of his church. It is also a good opportunity for me to ask for your forgiveness and that these messages we trust will help us as Christians do a much better job of representing our Savior Jesus before you. So thank you if you're in that second category for simply coming this morning and giving us that opportunity. Okay, let's start with the weapon. First of all, he talks about the belt of truth. Now Jesus called Satan the father of lies. He said he has been a liar from the very beginning. If that is the case, then truth obviously stands right up at the top of the list. It is not surprising that it becomes the first weapon in our warfare against the one who is the father of lies. There are many dimensions to it. I think it means, first of all, that husbands and wives need to be open to truth about ourselves. Because so often the dominant focus in marriage is the truth about our spouse and not about ourselves. Specifically, we need to listen to what our spouses can say to us about especially painful truth. I can think in the 36 years that I've been married of three occasions. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it's three occasions when truth that Shan spoke about me to me impacted me with so much power that it actually resulted in permanent changes in my life. One of them was perhaps the most dramatic of them all. It happened about 12 years into our marriage. It was like a broadside. I wasn't expecting it. And the details I can spare you for the moment. They don't belong here, but... The upshot of what I learned about myself was that while I was being a good father and a good provider and and, uh, a faithful husband, I had just completely and totally neglected to nurture my wife emotionally. It wasn't what I was doing that was wrong, it was what I was not doing. And it's easy for me to say those words 24 years after that, but it was anything but easy to hear them. It was a fairly traumatic experience in my life, and it took the better part of four or five years after that to reverse that trend. And and to begin to do something different. So as spouses, as we carefully and gently speak the truth to one another, let us be open to those truths about ourselves. Because after all, the ones that we are married to are the ones that progressively get to know us better than any other human being. As well, they should. It is also important to recognize those times when the things that our spouses say to us are 90% not true, but 10% true. Those are even harder sometimes because we react to all the things that are not true. But buried in those are those kernels of truth. And it takes, it takes some practice, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, about listening to those kernels of truth. The other two instances in my life have to do with those kernels that God brought to the surface after my initial resistance. We also need to be open to the truth, whether from our spouses or from others who know us. What are the things that drive us? We are all driven. We are all driven by healthy things, and we are driven by unhealthy things. Uh, powers within us. And those unhealthy drives within us are often far more obvious to other people than they are to us. For example, there are self-worth issues that can drive us to, to, to drive for success in our businesses, in, uh, in climbing the social ladder, in our careers. There are security drives that lead us to amass large amounts of money or hunger for power and control. There are the drives of emotional wounds from the past that have built up reservoirs of anger that can make us lash out at our spouses. And and these things, 
These unhealthy drives will continually trip us up in this battle and in this warfare. And so Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Be open to the truth about yourself. Most often that which will come from your spouse and from others that you might know well too. Second thing he talks about is the breastplate of righteousness. Now righteousness is a very comprehensive term in the Bible. It it includes all dimensions of right living. Ethics, morals and so many things. But the particular thing that I want to talk about here because it relates to the issue of of this fight against the enemy for our marriages has to do with moral purity. I mean, now today, uh, and by the way, our drivenness in some of those other areas often makes us vulnerable to failure in this area or crossing boundaries. The the news uh, channels have been full of the story of Elliot Spicer this past week. Eight years Attorney General of New York, one year the Governor of New York. Educated at Yale and Harvard, and how many people tout education as the answer to our problems? Educated at two of the best Ivy League schools. Married for 21 years to a woman for all practical purposes. Uh, seems to be a good faithful wife. Three, three daughters. And yet this man has spent by one account tens of thousands of dollars with prostitutes who are barely older than his daughters. Now most of us sitting in this room say, never go there in terms of our actions. But we can travel long and far in our thought lives. And I am discovering nowadays from what people tell me it's no longer restricted to men. This whole phenomenon called Facebook I'm told now, uh, many, many cases, provides a whole new kind of temptation where spouses, husbands, and wives are connecting with old flames in schools and colleges and universities and are getting involved in emotional affairs all over again. I've come across at least three of them in the last year. But the point that I want to talk about this morning is not just that we need to be pure. It is that if we are not careful in these areas, it is like going into a battle with no weapon for our whole front. Can you imagine going into a real battle with nothing to cover your chest and your heart and your abdomen? That's what is happening here in these cases. No, it's right. That's what's at stake. So Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth in this area that spouses can speak to one another and walk in truth is a huge step towards putting on that armor of God. It's not easy. And it's so important. And in the last several months, I've had the wonderful joy of seeing this happen in two different marriages. In one particular case, a couple married for well over a decade. Emotional intimacy has slowly been spiraling downward. And and not surprisingly, made one of them vulnerable in this area. Crossing a boundary. They were able to speak the truth. And the other spouse, though hurt, received it appropriately. And today, they are taking a stand for their marriage. Today they are clothing themselves in the breastplate of righteousness. Today they are putting on the armor of God. And as they are doing it, both emotional intimacy and genuine intimacy at all levels is beginning to come back into their marriage. Think of another situation where where a spouse, this time not in the realm of action, but just in the realm of inclinations and thoughts, found the courage to be able to articulate that to, to their spouse who again though hurt received it so well uh, and and to see the joy of of that whole marriage being taken to whole new levels. These two things work together, you know, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Now the third one is a little bit of a mouthful and needs some uh, explanation, not just a simple armor. He says, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
Now, Paul is actually in the house arrest when he's writing these letters. And he's probably seen Roman soldiers around him, maybe even chained to him. And so as he looks at a Roman soldier with all his regalia, he is reminded of many of the individual weapons that a soldier has. And he uses them by analogy to describe various weapons in the spiritual realm. And one of the things that the Romans wore were special shoes or sandals. Most of Roman military battles used to be, in those days, was hand-to-hand combat. We didn't have nuclear weapons and long-range missiles and stuff like that. So a lot of battles involved hand-to-hand combat. And in hand-to-hand combat, it was absolutely important for their feet to be stable. They couldn't afford to have their feet be slipping out under them. Imagine hand-to-hand combat on our winter streets out here with ice. You know? Can't do it. And so their shoes had spikes, much like golf shoes, I'm told. That, that dig into the ground. So you, when you put all of that together, the, 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 the metaphor, the idea behind this metaphor has to do with stability in times of attack so you can be focused on the mission. And even the word gospel, when, uh, when Caesar was, I can't remember whether it was when a new king was, or not, was or heir was born or when Caesar ascended the throne. That proclamation had exactly the same word in the Greek language as the word gospel. Gospel wasn't a new word. (laughs) He was simply declaring there was a new king called Jesus. So when you put all of that together, Paul is saying, don't forget what you learned at the very beginning. That marriage was set firmly in the context of mission. And we learned that last week. That whether we were singles or whether we were married, that was central in our life is the mission of of, of the proclamation of the gospel. And he says you need to be firm-footed and united in that area. This focus upon mission is so critical will be one of the most powerful forces to keep you united in your marriage because you have a common enemy. You're not one another's enemies. You fight back to back against a common enemy. Uh, Paul wrote another letter from the same time to a church in Philippi, a a city in Greece. And there were two women then. There wasn't a marriage situation, but there were two women who were not getting along. And when when Paul appealed to them for for unity to get along, one of the great motivations he gave them was, he says, remember, you contended together with me for the gospel. And that word contending together comes from two words. One which means together and the other is the word for athletics from which we get athletes. So his idea in his mind was like two people who were involved in a team sport in athletics. They didn't fight with each other because they had a common goal to win. They suppressed their differences in order to win, win the goal. And so this third weapon is an interesting weapon. It is a weapon that comes understanding that we have a common mission that is far greater than any private little submissions we may have for our marriage. And when he made Adam and Eve, he said, rule and subdue this universe. Rule and subdue creation for the glory of God and for the benefit of humanity. And then as Christian husbands and Christian wives, we learned last week, the proclamation of this good news through the gifts that God has given to us is the mission. So focus upon that mission becomes a central element of uh, this getting ready for battle and, a we- and serves actually as a weapon. Then he talks about the helmet of salvation. Paul doesn't elaborate and there are probably many ways in which we can look at it. But the one that is most relevant to us in this present context, when I think of the helmet, I think of protecting my head. We've got to be able to think clearly in a time of battle. The reason why generals don't go out to fight on the front lines is they are the strategists. Somebody has to think about the battle. Somebody has to develop the strategies and mobilize the forces. Winston Churchill, during the Second World War, somebody said he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. We needed a man like him. And so that just says to me that when it comes to marriage, a clear mind is absolutely critical because this The mind is a major battle, probably the primary battlefield when the enemy attacks us. 
And so it is crucial for husbands and wives to be able to think very, very clearly about a whole lot of things if they're going to win in this area. Paul writes elsewhere to the church in Corinth with these words. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So he says the battles are not physical but spiritual. The weapons are not physical but spiritual. And he says the fortresses that we take down are not physical but spiritual or mental. He says, look what he says. We demolish arguments and every pretensions that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. There is a way of thinking. There is a way of arguing. There is a way of reasoning that is contrary to God. And in our marriages we can fall into this kind of wrong thinking. And Paul says with these weapons we need to take these thoughts captive. The helmet of salvation sitting around our heads I think underlines that for us. How do we do this? How do we take our thoughts captive? How do we recognize arguments and rationalizations and pretensions that are hostile or contrary to God? The next weapon talks about, it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The way we take our thoughts captive and the way we make them obedient to Christ. The way we recognize arguments and pretensions so we can even demolish them is by thinking, learning to think correctly through the word of God about our marriages, which is what we're doing in messages like this. And then replacing those wrong thoughts, those irrational arguments and pretensions against God. It means we need to get a good handle on what God says about marriage. That's why I've been taking these series of messages. It means you need to perhaps fish out those messages from last September. On the three messages on the God's blueprint for marriage. Last week's message and this one. And hopefully as the year goes along, I want to pick up the subject because I'm nowhere near exhausted what the Bible says on this subject. We need to perhaps take those study guides. And it doesn't matter if your marriages are, are okay. In fact, a far better time to do those kinds of studies is when everything's fine. Prevention is a lot better and a lot wiser than cure is. The better the handle we have on what God's word says to us about marriage, the more readily we will be able to recognize arguments and pretensions that are not true. Let me give you an illustration from a different field. Last week, last week we talked about the, the very noble purposes that God has for singlehood in the new covenant and I also talked to us about how we as married couples need to be very careful that we do not communicate wrong attitudes and mindsets to our single people by saying things or acting in such a way as to imply that they, have, they haven't arrived that they are incomplete and whatnot. well last I, I got quite a bit of feedback on the message I got quite a few singles who wrote to me and said how much they appreciated that but there's a married man who talked to me as well he said hey that message was really helpful to me I said how come he said, it just showed me all the wrong ways in which I was thinking. And he said, it's not going to go overnight. He said, but now I know how to stop it. As soon as I find myself thinking that way about any particular single, he said, I know now how to stop myself, think about what you told me, and change my thinking. I thought that is a perfect illustration of what it means to check arguments and rationalizations and pretensions and take your thoughts captive and make them obedient to Jesus. But of course, he wouldn't know how to do it if he didn't know what God's word said about singlehood. That's the whole point here. We need the sword of the spirit in our hand. We need to know what God's word says about anything in this particular case about marriage so that we can quickly recognize. We need a plumb line against which we can measure those things that are wrong or deviant or are unhelpful or whatever. And so it's important for us so that we can interrupt arguments and rationalizations and replace them with what God says about his word. And that takes training. 
Now at this point Paul says, and pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And pray also for me. Now at first sight, he mentions prayer four times. Now at first sight, you might just think that prayer is just one more of the, one more of the weapon. We have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness to preach the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and prayer. Well, actually it isn't true because he doesn't follow the pattern. He doesn't have some analogy of the weapon on the soldier, like he doesn't say the bazooka of prayer or something, you know, all of a sudden. He just says, and pray. What that says to me is that prayer is not just one among several weapons. It is the means by which all the weapons are put on and launched. Prayer becomes the means by which, the fundamental means by which we engage in spiritual warfare. And so what I would like to do is to go back to each of these other weapons that we've already talked about and talk about the role of prayer in putting on and deploying those weapons. For example, let me go back to this issue of being open to truth about ourselves. I told you about kind of a sledgehammer truth that woke me up 12 years into our marriage. But... Once I dealt with that, most of my issues of sham speaking truth into my life had to do with these kernels. And not too long ago, we had a fairly major argument, and I didn't think anything she said was true. And so I spent about three or four days thinking and scheming about how I needed to defend myself against all those things. And I think I could have mounted a pretty impressive argument. But God in his mercy has also built one habit into my life and that is to just seek his face every day. And you know what happened over those same four days? Little by little he just started dismantling all my defenses. Uh, Not that that what I was going to say was untrue, but the desire for them began to disappear. And you know what gets left behind when God takes care of all the defenses? The kernels. (laughs) And the kernels of truth now are no longer hidden and obscured by my own rationalizations. They are there crystal clear. And I thought, yeah, all those three things she said. Buried in all this 90% of stuff that, I, that wasn't true and I still think isn't true. These three things are really true. <laughs> but what happened was as a result of that time spent in God's presence, they were, they were sharp enough that I've, been, I've been able to make changes in those areas. So, so in, in prayer, our defenses get melted down if we stay long enough. So that even the kernels become visible enough for us to do something about them. They become big enough that we can't just dismiss them anymore. I could not deny the truth of the kernels. Breastplate of righteousness. How do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Uh, I thought of a, a way not to do it. Uh, those of you who have seen the movie Camelot or perhaps even watched the stage play, uh, remember Lancelot, you know? Where in the world is there in the world a man so extraordinary? C'est moi, you know? <laughs> That's not the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness goes before God and says, same what? I'm, everything she said about me is true, Lord. You confess. <laughs> you put on the breastplate of righteousness by confessing the ugly truths about yourself that either your spouse or your friends who know you well or God in his word has shown you. When you do, when you do, you then receive that forgiveness. And we've been singing about this beautiful table that Christ has prepared where once your enemy now seated at your table, And here's the key. The more we are able to acknowledge our errors before God and receive His forgiveness, the more likely we are to rise from those kinds of encounters and forgive our spouses for their real shortcomings against us. And vice versa. 
Remember in the third message on God's blueprint for marriage, I talked about one of the major implications of marriage reflecting Christ's relationship to the church is that marriages are marked by grace. Because that's how Christ treats his church. We are his church and bride by grace. We are saved by grace. And so husbands and wives' lives are to be marked by grace towards one another. You may want to take out that message and listen to it again. But this, it is this kind of putting on the breastplate of righteousness through confession and receiving of forgiveness that we then realize, wow, God, Christ has been so gracious to me. How can I but be gracious to my spouse? And when that happens for both spouses, you can see what happens. And then as far as the readiness of the gospel of peace. I talked about the mission being central. I think that's why Paul says pray also for me. (laughs) Pray for one another and pray for me. And he talks about his mission. You know what happens when we pray. When we pray for people who are involved. Sometimes in the toughest dimensions of this mission. You suddenly realize how high the stakes are. You realize that the cost that some of your brothers and sisters. Singles and marrieds are paying for the advancement of the gospel, and it kind of puts your little struggles in their proper perspective, or even bigger ones in their proper perspective. Certainly any offenses that you are now struggling with because your wife or your husband has committed these offenses against you, very quickly take on that proper perspective. If you're praying for your friends who are right now being surrounded by a mob with stones in their hands, with an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old son in danger of being hit by those stones, that has a very quick way of sharpening your priorities. And so prayer, prayer for this mission of which every marriage and every single person is a part also helps us to see our present fights in their proper perspective. And small things become then, we begin to feel them to be small. And then same thing with the helmet of salvation, which I talked to you, works together with the word of God, which is truth. Uh, We need to take our minds and our thoughts captive. And we can only recognize these arguments and pretensions if we know the truth. Here's the thing about the truth. Even though the Bible, the word of God, is the sword of God, all kinds of people read it and don't get transformed. You know why? Because information transforms nobody. Paul says to us, knowledge, mere knowledge puffs up, only makes us proud. And I think it was John Stott who said, second only to ecclesiastical pride is intellectual pride. The worst kind of pride is religious pride. Which means the ones that are most guilty of this are likely to be some of the Bible scholars. We, we need something that takes printed words and makes them the living voice of God that speaks to us. And you've heard me talk about this many times before. God's purpose in the word is not information, but transformation through relational encounters. And for that we need prayer. God's word becomes that word that you treasure and love that can then serve as this plumb line against which you can check rationalizations, arguments and pretensions and take every thought captive. That only happens when the Holy Spirit takes printed word and make them into living truth that you then love. You're not going to take your thoughts captive if you don't love that word. And and we need prayer for that. Only the Spirit can make the word of God alive within us. And then notice something else, another dimension of prayer. In in this entire list of weapons, there's only one that's offensive. I mean, the belt, the breastplate, shoes, helmet, they're all defensive weapons. But it is the sword of the Spirit that is the offensive weapon. So not only, not only does the Word of God that comes alive through the work of the Holy Spirit become a means by which we can take thoughts captive and submit them to Christ, we also can then use those words of Scripture, those truths of Scripture, as offensive weapons against the enemy. 
resist what is called resistance praying, praying against the enemy. Dr. Tozer had a very small little booklet. I've never read the booklet, but I've always loved the title. And the title of the booklet was, I Talk Back to the Devil. <laughs> now that's what this is talking about. We take the enemy and we speak the word of God back to the enemy. We remind him that he's a defeated enemy. In, earlier on in the same letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds them as a church that we have been made alive with Christ. We have been seated with Christ. We have been raised with Christ far above all these principalities and powers. That we are now in a position of authority over demonic forces in Jesus. And that's a good thing to remind our enemy of. And while both spouses have the privilege of doing this kind of resistance praying because men and women are children of God and have that authority in Jesus. For reasons that I can't go into today because that's another whole sermon or two by itself. Husbands, you have been given special authority to be able to resist the enemy on behalf of your marriages, on behalf of your children. And so you learn to use that. Now if you've been following in your text carefully, or you have a good memory, you'll remember that I skipped over one. I never said anything about the shield of faith. Because I want to use it to draw this message to a close. You see... Everything that I've been talking about today, that God's purpose in marriage has this transcendental element or dimension of uh, reflecting Christ's relation to the church, that we are in a spiritual battle, that we have unseen enemies, that we have spiritual weapons, and that these means of launching those weapons is prayer. All of this has to do with invisible reality, and we are creatures of space and time. The visible and the audible have tremendous power upon us. And so, ultimately, this whole thing becomes an article of faith. (laughs) If you do not believe any one of these things, if you don't believe that you're in a battle, if you don't believe that your marriage has this lofty purpose of reflecting Christ's relationship to the church, to the world, if you don't believe that there is an enemy that is attacking us, if you don't believe that there's spiritual warfare going on, if you don't believe that these are the weapons that you have and that you need, then you're not going to fight. And so faith, faith becomes absolutely foundational to this. Faith that your marriages are worthwhile fighting for. Faith that no matter how formidable the enemy is and no matter where you are in your marriage relationship at this time, that the battle can be won. In fact, battle has been won. And so we can fight it. Um, and specifically, in one verse in Hebrews, we are told, He, Jesus, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him, the enemy, who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Sometimes we are not willing to fight these battles for our marriages because we actually are afraid of what will happen if God answers those prayers. We don't want to be in this relationship. Many years ago I was talking to a man who had decided to leave his wife. He wasn't from this church. Uh, happened to know him from another setting. And I was pleading with him not to do so. And his final answer to everything I said was, well, to go back would be worse than death. So there are these metaphorical ways in which the fear of death is still something that Satan holds. Oh, if I go back into that relationship, I'll die. That's a lie. We need to know that God is able to bring new life back. Visible reality, as I said, is a powerful reality. What you see, the talk you hear in the water coolers at work, what you hear in the talk shows on television, what you read in the bestseller book list, 
what your friends and your colleagues might be saying to you. All of these things are readily and steadily undermining faith in invisible reality and in God's view of marriage. And so you need the shield of faith. <laughs> the amazing, beautiful thing though is that uh, he is the author of our faith too. That same Hebrews goes on to say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. This precisely this kind of faith that we are going to be celebrating on Good Friday, because it goes on to say, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The kind of faith that enables us to embrace a difficult road, because there is joy at the other end of it. That's the kind of faith that is needed to respond to what you heard this morning. That is precisely the kind of faith that Jesus is wanting and willing to give to us. And so that final weapon that we need to put on in prayer is to ask Jesus for faith. <laughs> that he will, be, he will author and initiate faith. And having initiated faith, he will perfect that faith within us as well. And, and for some of you, I did mention at the beginning, if you happen to be here and you're not yet a follower of Christ... Much of what, at least one huge dimension of what I've said this morning may not make any sense to you. I mean, you can understand it in logical terms, but not in terms of truth that affects you. Well, can I just give you an invitation if you happen to be in that category? You're at a very appropriate time in the Christian calendar to do this. We are entering into what is called Holy Week or Passion Week. Good Friday, Easter Sunday. These are the central events that define the Christian faith. Christ's death and His resurrection. And I would just invite you, if you're in that category, to pray a very simple prayer. Say, Lord, if if God, if you really exist, Jesus, if you really are what the Bible seems to say you are, if your death on the cross really had that cosmic significance, if marriage, my marriage is really intended to have this kind of a cosmic significance in this world, if there truly are enemies like this that are attempting to take me down, If there's a spiritual realm that I'm blind to, please, begin that journey. (laughs) Open it. Get me started. That's a simple prayer you can pray. You have nothing to lose if you pray that way. And if you're willing to, we would love to invite you back to come here on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. So you can find out a little bit more about um, what is the significance of Christ's death on the cross. And what is Jesus doing today for you and for me. But for today, I'm just asking every one of you, no matter where your marriage is, to make this one commitment. We were invited to take a stand. And all I want you to do today is to say, okay, I will take a stand. I will, de- I will redirect a bad marriage. I will renew a stagnant marriage. I will rejuvenate an old marriage. And I will reinforce a good marriage. I don't know. You're in one of those four categories. Bad, stagnant, old, or good. And whichever you are, take a stand and say, in the light of what I've heard today, in the light of the eternally significant purposes of my marriage, and that is to reflect Christ's relationship to the church, I will, by the grace of God, take my stand. As the worship team comes now and and leads us in two songs, they're focused on Jesus. And the reason they're focused on Jesus is because everything has to do with Jesus. Marriage is the reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. It is Jesus' death on the cross that destroyed the enemy. It is Jesus resurrected who is praying for us. It is Jesus who is the author and perfecter of the kind of faith that is needed. So really, ultimately, it is all about Jesus. I want to bless you with faith. It's the single foundational. Somebody told me on the way out, wow, I thought you were going to leave out the most important part of all. Isn't it all ultimate? Yes, it is. Yet it is. May the eyes of your heart be enlightened. 
May you know the hope to which he has called you. As singles and as married couples working together. May you know the riches of your inheritance in the saints. May you treasure the saint that is closest to you. Your spouse if you're married. And your children. And the spiritual children that we are told we learned last week. May you learn to treasure them. And may you know the incomparably great power of Jesus Christ. This Easter. When God exerted that in him and raised him from the dead. May you know yourself to be men and women who have been made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, far above all principalities and powers. And may you know fresh infusion of boldness and courage to be able to battle this most important of all battles. Go in Jesus' name.